When I think of the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay, when I think of the prisoners that are still held in Guantanamo Bay, even now, so many years, eight years after I was released from there, I often think of this song we used to sing amongst one another. And it was written many years ago by one of the prisoners who was eventually executed in Egypt. And though I don't remember all of the verses now, I do remember the most important part in the beginning. And it is this. أخي أنت حر وراء السدود أخي أنت حر بتلك القيود إذا كنت بالله مستعصما فماذا يضيرك كيد العبيد My brother, you are free despite these cuffs and these chains My brother, you are free behind these walls If you held on to the rope of Allah then what harm can the schemes of men do to you? So when you think of the prisoners of Guantanamo Bay and when you see me and others, I don't want you to feel sorry for us. For after all, the Prophet ﷺ said, dunya kafir. That this dunya, though we chase it and run after it and it's never enough for us, is in fact a prison for the believer and is a paradise for the disbeliever who chases it. My dear brothers and sisters, Guantanamo, as the brothers have described or said, for me, wasn't the worst place. It wasn't even Bagram. It was in fact the places that I, thankfully by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, wasn't even sent to. And when the war on terror began, you have to understand that people who look like us who speak like us, who have Arabic within our language, who pray like us, who have beards and hijabs and niqabs, have been described by the Prophet ﷺ in the light of how the disbelievers or some disbelievers see us. بدأ الإسلام غريب وسيعود غريبا كما بدأ فطوبا للغرباء That Islam began as a stranger. And it will return as a stranger the way it began. So glad tidings for the strangers. And you and me and all of us and the prisoners in Guantanamo are strangers. And the reason why it's easy to torture us. It's easy to talk about brothers are being tortured and sisters being killed. And it's like almost a rhetoric without any evidence. Until you break it down. Let me just tell you a little bit about myself before I do that. I am a British citizen born and raised in the United Kingdom. In 2001, I went with my wife who is a Palestinian, with my children to go and work on a project to build a school in Afghanistan under the rule of the Taliban. And it's important people understand that because they claim that the Taliban didn't allow female education and I'm here as a witness to say that they did. Because we opened a school for them. What they didn't do and what they didn't allow is to allow Western, white, imperialist, colonialist people to come in and build schools and bring in their agenda. No, they didn't allow that. And if they were upset about that, well, why should they? Why should they have allowed them to come in? But they were most welcoming to people who came in from the Muslim community and said, we want to help to educate our sisters and our daughters. So yes, the Taliban did some things, 
they were harsh, they did some things wrong, they were not angels in any way at all. They were all sorts of mistakes made. But nonetheless, we can't deny that they were Muslims. And so we remained there working on the school project and building uh, wells in the drought-stricken regions of the northwest and elsewhere until the September 11th attack. And like the brother said, most people in Afghanistan, even I didn't know what the Twin Towers were. And I consider myself a fairly knowledgeable person. I had no idea. I had never been to America. I had never been to America. But America was about to come to me. And so when those attacks took place, the ensuing war on terror, or war of terror, they call it Operation Enduring Freedom, as if freedom is something you have to endure. And clearly it should have been called Operation Ending Your Freedom because that's what happened to hundreds of us. We evacuated my brothers and sisters under cruise missiles that when they landed, if they land half a mile away, it would shake the earth underneath your feet and every window in the house would smash. We had to hide with the children and the women in the cellars that could have been our protection or could have been our communal grave. And it did become the grave of many. And when we evacuated, we saw the deaths of hundreds untold numbers of people. And like the brother said, in fact, it's not 3,000 people who died on September the 11th. It's 2,976. The reason I know that number is because every single individual, every single digit has been counted and uh, provided. In response to the killing of these people, which was wrong and we don't agree with it at all, but the response to this was to kill an untold number of people. And the pun here, brothers and sisters, is that they don't count. Do you get that? They don't count. Who cares if it's a few thousand dead Muslim children, women, men? Who cares? Who counts? Not in Iraq, not in Afghanistan, not in Somalia, not in Syria, nowhere. Our blood is cheap and we are worthless. Except that in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know that the Prophet said that the blood of a Muslim is more sacred than the very Kaaba itself, for which we will be prepared to give our lives. But we're not ready to do that for the Muslims. So we evacuated under these bombs that landed, including 15,000 pound daisy cutter bombs. They make it sound like a lawnmower, but it doesn't cut, it doesn't mow lawns, it mows people's lives indiscriminately. It is the closest thing in use to conventional weapons to weapons of mass destruction. The next step up is a nuclear bomb. So we evacuated and I originated, as I said, from Pakistan. My, I was born and raised in the UK. My parents in Pakistan. I still have relatives there. We went and remained there until the night of the January uh, 2002, the 31st of January. And at midnight precisely there was a knock on my door. Just imagine this. And I don't, again, want you to feel sorry for me. I just want you to imagine this and imagine it happening not to this person sitting here who's free and by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can talk to you but imagine it happening to other people who are still in Guantanamo. I opened the door and I know many of you have four courts in your homes. They, this group of people unidentified without any uniform, without any identification stormed in, pushed me onto the ground in the forecourt, put a gun to my head, made me kneel tied my hand behind my back and shackled them, shackled my legs. And just before they put the hood over my head, I saw them walking into the room where my family was. 
And that was the last I saw of my family for three years. They carried me off then into a vehicle. In this vehicle were CIA agents and Pakistani stooges. And they drove me off to a secret detention site. And in this secret detention site, I saw things that I didn't believe, I didn't think they were happening. I didn't know that this was the type of world we were actually living in. Once, when they were talking to me, taking me to the bathroom, they lifted my, the hood of my head and I saw these people in these dungeons that looked like something out of the Middle Ages. Dark and black dungeon cells. People with their hands chained to the cell. I was relatively lucky because maybe I was a British citizen. And they were there from the Arab world and from the Muslim world, like animals. They had been sold, as Musharraf said in his book, that I received bounty money of millions of dollars for handing these people over without any legal, extrajudicial or judicial process. It was all extrajudicial. So eventually I was handed over to the Americans, and I thought maybe here comes justice, because these are the good guys, right? These are the, uh, the cavalry coming to save. But in fact it was the opposite. And I don't know how to describe this without um, saying things perhaps that I shouldn't in the masjid, but the, ra- the reality is that when they took us into custody, they sat upon us, threw us onto the ground, dragged us with our hands tied behind our back, and then ripped off our clothes with a knife. But before that, there's something I need to tell you. We're in the masjid. The Sahaba used to say that when times are difficult and hardships come about and during the day with the hustle and bustle of working and being busy, they would say, let us relax in our salah. It's time for relaxing. No noise. Nobody concentrating on anything else except what the Imam is saying or what's in your heart with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Imagine People ask me, did Americans ever let you pray? I mean, this, this question is itself is odd for a believer. But they took us, and me and these other prisoners who I didn't even know, I couldn't see them because I was, had a hood over my head. My hands were shackled behind my back and my legs were shackled. In the ruku' position, in the position of ruku', one American soldier pushing me down like this and the other one like this. So I'm walking in ruku'. And they pushed me onto the floor of the C-130 military transport plane. And I'm seated and I hear the sound of shouting and screaming and swearing, the din and the roar of the engines of the aircraft. The flashes that I can make out from the cameras, despite this black hood over my face, they're taking trophy pictures to go back home and stick on Facebook and YouTube to say these are the terrorists we captured, though we weren't charged. In the midst of all of this, to my left I sent and you can always sense, even if you can't see or hear, you can sense that there's somebody next to me in a similar position. And he said in a silent voice, Assalamu alaikum, akhi. I said, Wa alaikum assalam. Minayn anta, akhi. And I said, Where are you from? I said, I'm in Britannia. Anta minayn, akhi. Ana Libya, akhi. You understand what I'm saying? The next words he said weren't about where are they taking us, what are they doing, did they beat you up, is there any way out. He didn't say anything like that. What he said next 
أخي أظن دخل وقت الصلاة لازم نصلي هل صليت؟ Have you prayed? The time for prayer comes. And I can tell you, after having gone through all that process, may Allah forgive me, but I've forgotten about Salah. The last thing on my mind at that point. But this man was sent by Allah to remind me that under any circumstance, prayer must be performed. In the Salah, the Kant al Mu'minina, Kitabun, Mokuta. So, I said at this point, Akhi, inshallah, until Ali Yusar, you're, you're on the left, Fasalli, until Imam. At this point, an American soldier came over to me and put a knife to my neck. He said, if you speak again, I'll slit your throat. This very point, the brother said, Allahu Akbar. I didn't care, then you can see my neck still intact. And that's how I performed my first prayer in U.S. military custody. So if anybody wants to ever ask, I think you won't ask now. Did the Americans ever let you pray? I have to answer and say, there is no circumstance in which they could ever stop me. Or anybody else. The only one that can stop you, the only human being that can stop you from praying, is you. So we went to Bagram and to, I was held in Bagram for at least 11 months and then uh, to Guantanamo where I spent the rest of the time. In Bagram, again they did this process as I told you, they stripped us naked. They took us into this area where they took the lights were upon us. And I have to tell you too, one thing is being humiliated yourself. But watching the humiliation of another brother, watching his beard being shaved off like a sheep, his hair being shaved off and if you were to look in the mirror you wouldn't even recognize yourself. Watching him being searched in a disgusting way, bringing dogs over to salivate and bark over them taking photographs, punching and kicking them, dragging them in this state with no clothes on to be interrogated. Allah, you don't even hear about the mushrikeen of Makkah doing this. They had some honor as the Jahili Arabs had. So these were the types of oppressors, but it had just begun. It had just begun. Eventually, they put us into these cells and started coming around to needle us poking at us. The brothers would pray regardless. The brothers, their iman was much stronger than mine. They would call the other and say, no talking. You can't stop a Muslim in the middle of the other. No praying. When he's praying, they storm into the cells while the man got it. Well, when he's in sajda, dragging him off while he's in sajda, kicking him while he's in sajda, punching him while he's in rukur, kicking him down onto the floor. I saw this happen and happen to us. I am your God here, worship me. And then, knowing the Red Cross was present, but the Red Cross wasn't present all the time, so they had bought, or the Red Crescent rather had bought Qur'an to distribute, so they distributed, began to distribute them, but they had some for themselves. So you would see them, you want your Qur'an? Rip it up. Throw it into the toilet. Kick it with your foot. And we would make the dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Oh Allah! Oh Allah, you say in your book, you say in your book that indeed we have sent down this revelation and we will maintain its, we will maintain its, its preservation. Send us 
save your book, you owe Lord, because we're not able to do so. And then sometimes when they would take us for recreation, as they call it, or take us out of the cell to be searched or for interrogation, they'd use this as an opportunity to go in the cell and take the Qur'an. And we'd come back often to find profanities written in it as the Muslims. And worse things that I won't even repeat. Or we find that it had been ripped or thrown on the floor with footprints on it. So imagine this brothers and sisters, you know we are here in our environment, everything is familiar to us. Our family, our clothing, our food, the air that we smell and breathe is all familiar to us. The language, the people, the faces. But we were in a place where none of those things was familiar. Nothing. Not our clothing, not the food, not the accents, not the faces, not the environment, not the cells. We were completely out of our element. And the only thing that was familiar to us was Kitab Allah. And when we picked up that book and read it, it reminded us of when we were as children, or when we first started practicing the deen, that this, Allah bi al-qulub. When we came and saw that this had happened to this book, how are we going to have itmanan? So we said, or some brothers said, that if this is how you're going to treat our book, as an excuse to harm me, take it. So where's my solace? Where's my tranquility going to come from? We are the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Al-Nabi, Al-Ummi. The unlettered Prophet, who was told, Iqara. To which he replied, Ma ana biqari. I cannot read. We are that Ummah. So what did we do? The brothers who had memorized, shouted across to the brothers who hadn't. The brothers who knew taught the brothers who didn't from word of mouth. In fact, brothers and sisters, think about this. Think about this, the book of Allah we have here. Do you think the Quran was revealed like this? Do you think that's how it came down? How did it come down? How did it even get put into a book at the battle of, of Yamama when Musaylman al-Layah, the Kajab, was claiming to be a prophet? The Hufaz of the Quran, the majority of them, was so filled with zeal of protecting the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knowing that there's a false prophet presenting himself on a par with Rasulullah they all rushed to the battle and were getting killed one by one by one by one until the Sahaba thought if we don't put this, if we don't gather this these parchments and these uh, pieces of wood that the revelation has been put down in if we don't gather it into a book with the Quran will be lost so that's how your brothers in Guantanamo preserves the Quran. And so brothers and sisters, we remained in those cells and in those cages and people think that it was a hard and difficult time. Yes it was. It was a very difficult time. Eventually I was moved from Bagram to Guantanamo. Before, let me tell you, in Bagram I saw a couple of things and one of them was that there was a brother. And that's the film the brother uh, uh, mentioned. I didn't win the Oscar, the film won the Oscar. The film is called Taxi to the Dark Side. And it was a brother called Dilawar who was a taxi driver who had been brought in. No real evidence, no evidence against him at all. Just an accusation that he was driving some Arabs around. That was enough. So they brought him in. Uh, he spoke Pashto so I didn't understand what he was saying but he was in pain. They hung his hands to the top of the cage and placed the hood over it. As they used to do to all of us at certain times, especially to break us in the beginning. He was saying something I couldn't understand. I knew he needed help. 
But he was in a different part of the cell. I couldn't get to it. We weren't allowed to even get up. We weren't allowed to get up. If we did, they'd do the same to us. We weren't even allowed to pray in Jama'ah. We didn't know the times for Salawat. It was dark constantly or light constantly. We didn't know that Ramadan came and went. We made tayammam for one year. Because the water was only enough to drink. When they took us for showers, we refused because they would strip us all naked and tie chains across us and take us in a line, ten together, in open showers. What could we do? This brother, in this position, he couldn't take it anymore. His body slumped and his hands were stuck into the, uh, into the chains, into the cuffs, with the entire weight onto his wrist. The guards came along, they realized something's wrong, they opened the door, but one of them said, I think this guy's putting it on. Bang in the ribs. And again, and again, and again. And they unshackled him, took him upstairs. I didn't know this, but I learned later on that Dilawa was a taxi driver. He died that night, but I didn't know how exactly. What had happened is that Dilawa regained consciousness. And the first thing he said was, Allah, Allah. And it was the last thing he said. Because every time Dilawar said, Allah, Allah, the soldiers found it funny. And so they kicked him on the top of his thigh with something that's known as a peroneal strike. It's a Thai boxing style kick authorized by the US military to subdue um, resistant prisoners. He wasn't resisting, he was on the point of death. They kicked him that night on there over a hundred to two hundred times. And each soldier that went past, and there were many of them that evening, kicked him again and again and again. And he died saying, Allah, Allah. This was the situation in Bagram. In Bagram I heard the sound of a woman screaming in one of the interrogations that they led me to believe was my wife. Alhamdulillah it wasn't. But it was somebody's wife. It was somebody's daughter. It was somebody's sister. It was somebody's mother. After 11 months or 10 months of this, I, moved, I was moved to Guantanamo. And there for the most of the time I remained in solitary confinement. In a tiny little cell that measured 8 foot by 6 foot. I wasn't able to walk in more than 3 steps in either direction. Again, Ramadan came and went, didn't know. But I have to say, and it's important, the Allah subhanahu says, Ya yulladheena amanu. Be just witnesses for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and don't allow your animosity of a people to cause you to do them an injustice. Be just. That is closer to taqwa. So there were American soldiers who were decent. In fact, some of them were so decent that after some discussions between me and other prisoners, they said in front of us, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammadur Rasulullah. And to this day, they are Muslims. In fact, I believe one of them has visited South Africa. To look at him, you'd see he's white, but he has a beard and he has a cap. He'd look like any one of the brothers and the older brothers here, except that he's American. And there were others. There were sisters also. And one of them is in contact with me now. She wears the full hijab. And she said, Send this message please to our brothers. Remember that she was a guard's woman, an American soldier, who had been told that these are the most dangerous men on the planet who are out to get you. She said, and she contacted me on Facebook, and she said, Brother, 
I am one of the soldiers who guarded you at Guantanamo. You maybe don't remember me. But I want you to tell all the brothers there that I knew nothing of Islam before I came to this place. But when I saw you people holding on to your faith, knowing that I'm a Christian, that when something happens to me, I turn to the drink or to my boyfriend, you turned to the only thing that was sacred to you, your Lord. When I saw this happening, you sowed the seed of Islam in my heart. And when I went back, I too said, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammad Rasulullah. So dear brothers and sisters, it's not all a sad story. What is the story is that eventually, as I said, when I was in Guantanamo, time passed. And I want to tell you something that relates to South Africa. One of the occasions I was, I felt caged like an animal. Hadn't seen any Muslim now for almost two years. And my Iman was down. And I uh, paced up and down, up and down, up and down, punching and kicking and screaming and shouting and even swearing. Which is not my character. So they sent in a psychiatrist to see me. First time in my life I've ever seen a psychiatrist. And he sat opposite, looked at me and said, have you ever, have you ever thought about things that could help you? Perhaps, you know, you do know the story of Job in the Bible, Ayyub salam. Of course one of the things that happened to me when I was in Guantanamo, I had a child born. Six months after I was taken, I didn't see him until he was three years old when I came back. But my wife had named him Ayub because of the trials and tribulations of that Prophet So I told him that I've learned that my wife has named my son Ayub. Yes, I do know about it. Then he said to me, have you thought about the trials of Nelson Mandela? And look how he had dealt with being abused tortured and incarcerated. I said, are you suggesting that my position is like Mandela and yours is like the apartheid regime? He didn't come back again. So dear brothers and sisters, they thought that we were just crazed lunatic people. In fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given us a great deal of time to think, a great deal of time to reflect. Uh, the day that I memorized Surah Al-Baqarah, for me it was Quran, memorizing anything from the Quran was hard. When I memorized that in Baqarah, I made such that the shukr to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again and again and again and again. And now I can tell you that the, the, the Guantanamo prisoners, all of them hafad, and they didn't go to any other school. They didn't go to any madrasa except to the madrasa of Yusuf alayhi salam. And you know what that is, don't you? That madrasa is the one which begins with Yusuf alayhi salam being thrown, first of all, into what I call his first incarceration in the cell of the well, in solitary confinement. And the second one, when he goes to prison, and he has to go to prison for Judaism, Islam, for Judaism, Christianity and Islam to be complete, he has to go to prison. Because none of our faiths would be complete without his story. What does he say? He said, Rabbi as-sijnu ahabbu ilayya mimma yad'oonani ilayhi. My Lord, prison is more beloved to me than that which they call me to. And he remained in prison. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fit not even to mention the number, so he says, فَلَبِثِتْ فِسِجْنِ بِلْعِ سِنِينَ he remained in prison just for a handful of years. Bid'an in Arabic means odd. It could be three, it could be five, it could be seven, it could be nine, it could be eleven. It's irrelevant because it's in the path of Allah. And he had to go there because only there 
Could he have interpreted the dreams of the prisoners, one of whom wished had to go and work for Allah Aziz? Who would then tell him, there is a man in prison who can interpret your dreams and put aside your worries. And only after that was he placed ala khazain al-ard at the, uh, the treasury of the, of the land. And only then were his brothers able to come to see him and seek sustenance from him. And only then, when they realized, Yusuf? Are you Yusuf? Did he say, La tathrib al-yawm? There is no vengeance this day. Remember the brother was talking about qualities of Mandela? We had that in our being way before. La tathrib al-yawm, no vengeance this day. And it is the only surah in the Quran that gave us such an immense sense of that this is our story. And it's the only surah in the Quran that begins and ends as a story without any interruptions. And so for us as prisoners, it was something that gave us a great deal of hope and a great deal of uh, the ability to be steadfast. When I was eventually released, um, my father campaigned a lot. He had fought with different, uh, or, or had support from different organizations and individuals and Muslim community and non-Muslims and so forth. Eventually I came back and so did all the other Guantanamo prisoners. And by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we were eventually reunited with our families. Did I cry when I saw my child that I'd never seen before or the other ones that had been, you know, uh, my other daughter who was six years old or, or my son who was four? No, I didn't. The reason was because my tears had dried up. Because every day when you're in that situation, if you think about your children, you'll become weak. And you can't let them, the enemy, the oppressor, the tyrant, see you weak. We are, after all, the inheritors of the Prophet ﷺ and his legacy. And Sayyid al-Shuhada, Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib radiallahu anhu, of whom the Prophet ﷺ said he is the leader, the master of the shuhada and whoever spoke a word of truth in front of an oppressive tyrant and was killed for it after he enjoined good and forbade evil. So we couldn't let them see us weak. There were times when we became weak but we couldn't let them see us weak. But it did affect some of the brothers. But by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah opened doors for us that we couldn't imagine. Based upon the ayah we used to look at it so many times we, it was about talaq but it was it was about divorce but it was relevant to us وَمَن يَتَّقِ اللَّهَ يَجْعَلُهُ مَخْرَجًا look at that that's what we were looking for whoever fears Allah he will open a door a way out for them وَيَرْزُقْهُ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا and he will provide for him from where he could never have imagined and Allah subhanahu has brought us here to this day at the extremes of the earth to talk about this years later and if the brothers in Guantanamo were to hear that the community in South Africa which generally hardly ever gets mentioned when we're talking about the Muslim world that they are still here listening, supporting, even setting up an office for caged prisoners so that it never dies and the record of history bears witness to what the people they did today, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to make dua like we used to make dua in the middle of the night in our separate cages that 
Although our incarceration is bitter, it is also sweet. Who could ever be in an environment where you could be amongst people from every part of the world, where they aren't like we are, so taken by the English language that they only speak English. In fact, some brothers refuse to speak English at all and say, I will not speak their language, I will speak the language of Ahlul Jannah. And they taught it to the Turks, to the Pakistanis, to the Indonesians, to the Tajiks, to the Europeans. And so brothers left from Madras Yusuf salam, in addition to being Hafaz of the Quran, to being speakers of the Arabic language. It is amazing that I meet brothers. Now I only speak with them in Arabic because they learnt it in Guantanamo. And as the brother said earlier on, if we were that dangerous, as they had said and claimed, then why are we free? Over 600 of us. So all of these things, dear brothers and sisters, is something to reflect upon, something to ponder upon. That they wish, They wish to extinguish the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with their mouth. And Allah will protect this light, even though the pagans detest it. They don't like to see the strangers, the ghuraba, becoming prominent, or people listening to their message from Muslims and non-Muslims. And I can tell you, I speak more to non-Muslims than to Muslims. And some of them become Muslims, some of them don't. Like with Nelson Mandela, we find plenty who understand that the oppression that's taking place against Muslims is a global issue. So, some of the greatest supporters of cage prisons are non-Muslims. And they respect us, not despite, but because we hold on to our faith and to our principles. Because they know what they see is what they get. There's no hiding there's no pretending. This is who we are, this is what we believe in, this is our faith, this is what we care for, this is what we want. And by the grace of Allah, finally just one thing I want to say because the Sheikh mentioned Syria. You see, when I got returned from Guantanamo, it didn't kill my spirit. It didn't kill the spirit of the brothers. I'd gone before in the past to Bosnia and to Afghanistan to help and to assist the people. And when I came back, I've been to Libya and to Tunisia and to Egypt to Kenya to investigate the complicity of various governments in rendition. But I also went to Syria. And I stayed there, not for two days, three days a week, I spent there for several months. And amongst the things that I saw was that in this blessed land I could never have imagined, of which Prophet ﷺ said, Allahumma baraka nati shamina, oh, Allah give us barakah in our sham, of which he said, that if the people of Sham are corrupted and destroyed, there's no good in you. That there will always be a group of my Ummah that's victorious. And they will not be harmed by those who are treacherous towards them until the final hour. So as long as there's good in the people of Sham, there's good in you. And I saw a great deal of good amongst those people. And a great deal of help coming for those people from all of the Muslim world. From Britain there were convoys of hundreds and hundreds of vehicles that had come. Ambulances and uh, fire trucks and dump trucks and support and doctors. And yes, yes, yes. 
I have never buried so many people in my life and I've buried lots than I have buried in Syria the graveyards are full and they need your support and your dua so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't kill our spirit from this test in fact he built it up and in a sense in a sense I have to thank the CIA and the FBI and the MI5 and the military intelligence for all the times they interrogated me because every time they put a gun to my head and asked me questions and threatened me they didn't know what they were doing they were making me stronger they didn't intend it but that's what they were doing and that's what they did to the other brothers so inshallah we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he makes a way out for all of the prisoners who have been unjustly held اللهم فق قيد إخوانا المأثورين وردهم إلى أهلهم سالمين اللهم أهلك الظالمين بالظالمين وأخرج المسلمين من بيد أيديهم سالمين أو الله free our brothers the Muslim prisoners and return them to their homes safe and sound أو الله destroy the ظالمين with the ظالمين and bring the Muslims free from outside their clutch safe and sound بإذن الله سبحانه وتعالى may Allah سبحانه وتعالى give this community the توفيق بإذن الله to support our work and to if we've made any mistakes to correct us when we need that jazakumullah khair subhanakallah wa bihamdika ashhadu an la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik goodness i thought i said enough but uh, i've been reminded that there are a few more things to talk about okay there are three things that i've been asked to mention uh, there's a young boy who's no longer who became a man in guantanamo and i have to tell you about him and if you get a chance to search for his name his name is Omar Khadr he is a Canadian citizen of Egyptian origin and he was born brought into Bagram when I first saw him and the way that he was captured is that the Americans they had got some quote-unquote intelligence that there are Al-Qaeda people so they sent in the Black Hawk helicopters and they fired rockets and destroyed this entire compound and out of there one person survived this young 14 year old boy they brought him into Bagram but before they did that they blasted him in the back with a shotgun twice he had exit wound in his shoulder and exit wound near his heart and they shot out his eye they brought this boy into the Bagram detention facility where I saw him he was young he was weak he was emaciated he was gaunt but he was uncomplaining in fact the only thing I ever saw him mutter because we weren't allowed to talk we weren't allowed to talk to one another was that he would sit down and recite the Quran in his beautiful voice and sometimes I couldn't tell is he crying or is it because his eye has been lost I couldn't tell and sometimes the Americans they hated him in fact the Americans hated him more than anybody else because they claimed an American soldier had died while he was being taken captive so they would come and drag him outside with shackles on they tie his hands to his head despite his wounds and his injuries it was very painful for him they pile up crates of water and then kick them down and make him pile them up again and kick them down and make him pile them up again and they treated him like that he remained in Bagram like that until they sent him to Guantanamo where he remained for almost 12 years he's still in prison now in Canada he grew up as a child in Guantanamo that's one of them but there were several others there's also the case of Afia Siddiqui that I have to tell you. I told you that I heard the sounds of a woman screaming in a cage next to where I was held. When I was released, I found out, I started to search about, was there a woman in Bagram and learned that there was. 
I didn't find, who, find out who the woman was at the time when I was there, but later there was a woman. And some prisoners who escaped from Bagram said that there was a woman, her number was 650, she was Pakistani, she had children who had been taken away from her, and that she had been raped and tortured, and that they protested against as much as they could with hunger strikes, and eventually they took away after she lost her mind. We, as you may know, Yvonne Ridley is part of Cage Prisoners, she went on to investigate this after we spoke about, spoke about this, and we believe that Prisoner 650 was in fact Afi Siddiqui, who you must know has now been uh, for some time in uh, prison in the United States of America, serving an 86 year sentence. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa frees her, uh, but I have to tell you something that was so horrible that broke my heart. When I went to go and visit her mother in Pakistan in 2010, I returned to the place where I was kidnapped from. Me and sister Yvonne Ridley, she made a film about the return. And it was heartbreaking to go back to the same house to see what they had done and where they had done it. But I also went to meet with Afia's family. And Afia's mother told me something that really just killed me. She showed me this Quran that somehow had been managed to be sent from prison there to family. And it still has verses that's been underlined by Afia, so it gives you an idea of what it was she was thinking about. I don't remember the verses, I have them recorded at home, but forgive me, I don't remember what those verses are. But she said that Afia was told, after they stripped her naked, they threw her clothes on the other side of the cell, and then they put this Qur'an on the floor. And they said, if you want your clothes back, you have to step on this Qur'an. What does she do? It was things like this that you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is listening to the dua of the Muslim because between and it there is no hijab so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will respond and his wrath will be quick and powerful when it comes in this dunya or the akhirah the oppressors will not be able to escape and uh, the final thing one of the reasons why I was well the primary reason why I was sent to Guantanamo in 1998-99, a brother who'd been detained in one of the Gulf countries told me that he'd been held captive, beaten and tortured and forced to sign a confession and asked me, please can you help me and get me an international lawyer. The British intelligence services intercepted this message and came to see me in my house one morning, early in the morning. They sat in my house, I offered them tea. I remember them feeling very uncomfortable because uh, at that time I had no sofa so they had to sit on the floor and take off their shoes and they found that odd and some of them had holes in their socks. But nonetheless I remember this very well. And this one in particular I remember very well because I didn't know at the time but later on I learned he spoke fluent Arabic. And it was, a, you know, it was English as you get. So then when I was kidnapped and taken to a secret location in Pakistan. I turn up, hooded, shackled, on my knees. They lift up the hood. Who do I see? The same man who'd been sitting in my house. He turned up again in Bagram and he turned up again in Guantanamo. But I had him. When I came back to the United Kingdom, I took a case along with the other Guantanamo prisoners in the UK against him and the intelligence services. And by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa we won a big settlement against them. So people often say to us, and this is a thing of fear, because in the end we need to know 
that ultimately when people say, oh look brother, they might be watching you. I said, right, they are watching me. But wallahi l'azim, I'm watching them right back. And ultimately Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching us all. So we shall see. Uh, the purpose of torture is twofold for any oppressor. The first purpose of torture in this regard was to try to get information. That's how they justified it. That the more we use the various types of torture, uh, the more frightened they'll become, the more compliant they'll become. One of the things they threatened me, by the way, with was that if you don't cooperate with us, we will send you to Syria or to Egypt. And they did. That's one of the reasons why I was in Syria, to meet the brothers who had been sent by the Americans, who claimed that they don't like Bashar al-Assad, but it is a fact. They were working with all the despots. They were working with Gaddafi, they were working with uh, Mubarak, and they were working with Bashar al-Assad. And, they, and I, anybody who wants to challenge me on that, I have plenty of evidence. Uh, so this is one thing that they wanted to do. They also wanted to break our will to resist any type of interrogation or any type of subjugation. And they wanted to cause us to be frightened and degraded and humiliated. So when they called us, the category, the, the, the classification they gave us wasn't prisoners of war, because prisoners of war under the Geneva Conventions are supposed to have rights. So they called us enemy combatants, which is a new terminology, which took away our rights. But they also called us enemy aliens. And when you describe an alien, it becomes something easy. When you say somebody is an alien, it becomes so much more easy when you say that he looks different, he talks different, he prays different, he eats different, he is different, he's the other, he's the alien, he's subhuman. When somebody becomes subhuman, it's so much easier to torture him and that's how it became so easy for them. In terms of my own personal thing, what did go through my mind? Two things. One was, as they wanted, I'm a human being, that I'm being prepared to sign any confession that they want to give me. The other was, Oh Allah, just free my hands. Because I will punch and take out every single one of these just to get to that room, to rescue whoever it is that's in there. That's what went through my mind. Um, we were all given numbers. All the prisoners were given numbers. They were all, uh, we were all dehumanized to this point. So uh, they would not, nobody, nobody's name would be known. Everybody would be given a number. Mine was 558. Uh, that's part of the dehumanization process. Uh, and also one thing I'd really like to add about Bagram and Guantanamo. People say, is this a war on Islam or war on terror? Now, I don't want to jump on the bandwagon and uh, scaremonger and so forth. I don't like to do that. I want to have harmony with the non-Muslims. I don't want to be in turmoil or in battle with them, but I have to accept the reality as well. I can't close my eyes and say it's all a big conspiracy. Every cell in Bagram had a label. One label was Twin Towers. Another one was the Pentagon. Another one was Somalia Mogadishu. Another one was Lebanon Beirut. Another one was Libya Benghazi. So all of these were incidents when in the history of the United States they had engaged with Muslim peoples or countries uh, in violently. There were no Korea or Grenada or Vietnam or Germany. So if it not was just a war on everything that's wrong, according to them, why didn't they include those? 
And the first condition to be a prisoner in Guantanamo, you have to be a Muslim. There are no IRA terrorists in Guantanamo. There are no Tamil Tigers who carry out suicide bombings in Guantanamo. There are no Shining Path, Shining Path guerrillas in Guantanamo who kidnap people for money. There are no Michigan militias who carried out the bombing in Oklahoma in 1996 and still exist to this day in Guantanamo. They are all Muslims. There's a question here that's about uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, they claim, is the uh, mastermind of September 11th. He was held in a secret detention site uh, in several places, including maybe Diego Garcia, uh, which is a, a British island, and was tortured and waterboarded, and waterboarded over 183 times. Uh, if he was responsible for September 11th, the best thing for them to have done was to take him straight to a court of law and judge him the way they judged any other criminal if that was the case. The reality is that they brought his two children in front of him and tortured them. They used insects, uh, lethal insects, uh, including scorpions and camel spiders, which are very deadly and vicious on the children. Uh, but, of course, unbeknownst to him, the stings have been taken out. But this type of torture on your children, beating them, slapping them, in order to uh, humiliate you, was happening to him. Waterboarding, for those of you who don't know, is called torture of the water. It originated during the Spanish Inquisition and was used on prisoners like uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and many others. And he remains in Guantanamo and is facing, facing the military commissions which has been regarded a, as a kangaroo court by all of the other, um, including America, uh, nations. So this court that they are having for people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed could not happen on U.S. soil because the first thing they would ask is how did you get this information to the prosecution and they would have to say by torture, which would be thrown out of court. Uh, brother, uh, uh, the sisters, I think they're asking about the organization called Hugs. Uh, in the United Kingdom we have an organization called Helping Households Under Great Stress or Hugs and they do a very practical role in helping the families of detention uh, victims, whether in the UK or whether they're abroad like in Guantanamo, they, are, they help with prison visits, they arrange uh, outings for the children, they arrange gifts for the children on Eid and on other days, they help to pay for school fees for those who are going to Islamic schools, they help um, in doing events and raising awareness. So this is a, a, our sister organization, you will see the link to them on our website inshallah. I said, the question says, with the release of the detainees and the number of human rights lawyers joining the cause, has any much headway been made regarding the illegal arrest, detentions or torture? Are the numbers still rising? Look, there's two things here. That one, you have to remember that Obama, he did say he's going to close Guantanamo. He didn't. Uh, but remember that over 600 plus prisoners have been released from Guantanamo, not one of them as a result of any legal proceeding. Because when it comes to the law in Guantanamo, the legal process in Guantanamo, it's an oxymoron. There isn't one. And so everybody has been released according to diplomatic agreements and so forth. Uh, the, the prisoners are not protected by any laws. There have been Supreme Court decisions that have been passed in the favor of prisoners that they are presented to the court, taken to the U.S., but the U.S. government has blocked it every time. So if the U.S. Supreme Court's judgments don't matter, then whose will? And let me tell you a little irony here, is that the iguana, which is a reptile, is protected by the Endangered Species Act 
on Guantanamo. If you harm it, this, you see it everywhere, running around, walking around. You know, it, it walks very slowly. If it's harmed, you can expect to pay up to $10,000 in a fine. The prisoners are not protected. In fact, nine of them have died in Guantanamo and gone home in a coffin to their families waiting for them. Uh, one of the things that cage prisoners have done is to try to remind people about what are their obligations as Muslims according to the Quran and the Sunnah for the prisoners. We all know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about those who feed the needy and the, uh, the orphans. He says, that they spend, the believers spend from that which they love, that which is beloved to them. So not the things that it's easy to give away, but that which you love. Upon the poor and upon the orphan. Now we all do the first two, do we do the latter? The answer is no. We don't even think about it. We didn't even know that uh, that word existed in its context. And the Prophet said, Visit the sick, which we do. Or feed the hungry, which we do. Alhamdulillah. But he also ended it by saying, Free the prisoner who does that. Who does this? So the same, in the same line of the same verse, the same hadith, all of these times the prisoners are mentioned. So they, it is a forgotten obligation. And if you go to the Cage Prisoners website, you will see that there is an article that I've put together called Zakat and the Forgotten Obligation of the Prisoners. I urge you to read it to see that Allah Taala Himself, when He talks about the categories of Zakat, He even describes Wafirqab, those whose necks are held captive. We don't have slavery anymore, but we do have prisoners held who we should uh, support, inshallah.